0: So we are in Numbers chapter uh, 23. Uh, We're actually going to be through Numbers chapter 23 through chapter 24, verse 25. In other words, we're going to cover two chapters today in our journey through the book of Numbers. And um, we're getting there. We've got 36 chapters in the the book of Numbers, and we're we're working our way through it. And I hope you're enjoying it. I'm loving it. And uh, it's probably been something other than what you imagined when we first started it's certainly something different than i imagined um but it's uh i think we are not only seeing the, the beauty of the book of numbers but also um we see god's big plan his big picture we see how it's so gospel centered In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer wrote this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And uh, we do not have time to completely unpack that statement, but I think there is much value in considering it, what we think about when we think about God, how important that is to us. Because a right view of God leads to right actions, right loves, right priorities. A wrong or an incorrect view of God leads us down many dangerous and uh, perilous paths. And I hope that today, in just a minute I'll I'll lay out where we're going to go today, but I think that this quote is going to be relevant as we go through our texts today. So before we do, before we get into our text, let me give you a little bit of a review. Let me catch us all up to date as to where we are going in, in our passage today. We need to recall that Israel is on the border of the Promised Land. They have been uh, traveling that forty years in the wilderness, and now they are on the banks of the Jordan River. They are about to enter into the land of promise. Um, but while they are camped out in the land of, uh, on the border of the promised land. Just to the north of the kingdom of Moab, there is this covert plan, a covert plot to destroy him, to destroy them. It has been hatched by the king of Moab. His name is Balak. It's a name you should probably remember we'll be referring to him. But Balak, the king of Moab, has devised a plot covertly. Israel is completely unaware of this plan, but there is this plot to utterly destroy Israel. Now, how Balak is planning on doing this is uh, is the source of our study today, and actually last week as well. You see, Moab realized, Balak, the king of Moab, realizes we do not have the military strength to pull this victory off. We know that their God is way too powerful. We watched how he... He defeated the Egyptians and plundered Egypt. We've seen how he has defeated these two powerful kings, Sihon and Og, and we do not have the military power to confront such a, uh, an army like Israel, and we are completely unprepared and ill-equipped to fight against their gods. This is Balak's plan. He's going to hire a prophet and ancient Near Eastern warfare, a prophet like Balaam is a weapon of mass destruction. He has the ability to manipulate, coerce, convince the gods to work against his people and to work for um, those who pay him. And so Balak king of Moab, is going to hire this prophet, Balaam. And he he is hiring him for the purpose of turning Yahweh, Israel's God, against Israel. This then, of course, reveals to us base, uh, Balak's understanding of Yahweh. He has a completely wrong understanding of God. And as a result of his wrong understanding of God, he embarks on completely errant actions. His actions are flawed because his understanding of God is flawed. So let me give you a little bit of preview um, where we're going to go today. Just a general layout of these two chapters is we're going to see seven oracles or seven words that are revealed to this prophet Balaam. They are revealed to Balaam by God. God is using this crooked stick to strike a mighty blow. Balaam, we have, I have little regard for Balaam. We'll see especially next week Balaam's uh, problems. Uh, but uh, Balaam is a crooked stick and God can use a crooked stick to strike a mighty blow. And he is going to speak through Balaam today. And Balaam is going to be used to thwart the plans of Balak, king of Moab. And we're going to see these seven oracles. The first four of these oracles are going to result actually in blessing Israel, not in cursing Israel as he's been hired to do. Balak, of course, gets very upset with this because he's paying good money to have Balaam say a certain thing and Balaam says the exact opposite of what he's being paid to say. We'll encounter that today. So those are the first four oracles. The, the final three oracles have to do with um, other nations. So here's kind of what's going to happen. I'm going to focus on the first four oracles. The, the, the final three I'm not going to give a lot of attention to, but um, we, will, uh, we will look at them briefly. So one of the things that we are focused today then is on these first four oracles. And in these first four oracles, we are going to learn much about God, much about the God that we serve. And I hope that this is beneficial because as we learn about who God is, we are better equipped than to um To follow him and to love him. And so we are... Better able, As we know who this God is, we can better cast our cares upon him, knowing that he cares for us. We can withstand social ostracization. We can joyf- be joyful in suffering. We can be joyful in worship because we know the God in whom is being revealed in this book. And we are going to see that God is a God who keeps his promise. And one of the things we'll see today is that God keeps his promise to Abraham now. One more thing I want to outline before we uh, actually get into our text today. And and that is that um, I I want to make sure that we understand how this portion of Numbers fits into the big story of the Bible. Because, you know, one of the things that that we talk about often here is that the, the Bible, there's a big story. There's a grand, overarching narrative. And that This part of the book of Numbers is not some isolated text that we, that sits all by itself, but rather what we want to see is how does this story fit into God's big picture? And so let me just lay a little bit of a foundation to help us understand where this passage of text fits into God's grand narrative. And we need to remember that God has promised to redeem sinful man from the, from the curse of sin, and he's going to do this through the seed of the woman. You remember way back in Genesis 3.15, now you're all worried. You're going, I thought we were in numbers. We're going back to the beginning. How long is this sermon going to be? Um, anyways, God has promised to redeem mankind from the curse of sin. He's going to do it through the seed of the woman, Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. And it is then, then when we get to the person of Abraham a little later on in Genesis, God says, it is through you, Abraham, that I'm going to bring about my purpose. It is through you that my promise will be through fulfilled, and that is through you. All of the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And so then God um, creates a people out of this man, Abraham, this guy who had no children. And he creates a people. uh, He creates something out of nothing. And he promises to protect these people. And Israel, the people we're looking at, is that blessed nation that God said, Through you, Abraham, I'm going to raise up a nation and through this nation will come the answer to the curse of mankind. I'm going to bring it through you, through this group of people. And now what we are seeing is, how is God going to protect his people? How is God going to protect his promise? He has promised to protect um, Abraham, or he's promised to protect the seed of the woman. He's He's promised to protect this people. How is he going to do it? Because you see, through Abraham... The Messiah will come. And through this Messiah, salvation will be purchased for Jew and Gentile. Through this Messiah, the wall of separation will be abolished and the people of God will expand. And through the Messiah, the church will be established and the gates of hell will not prevail. And through this Messiah, people from every tribe and tongue and nation will be present before the throne of God, redeemed and recipients of the promise of God. And God is going to protect that promise. That promise in genesis three fifteen that we see fully consummated in revelation twenty two is protected by God, and we are going to see God making sure that his promise is protected and we 're going to see that here uh, against the curse that has been hired against them, even against threats that Israel was completely unaware confront were, were completely unaware of. God is protecting them. That's one of the beautiful stories about this is that everything that we're going to look at last week and this week, Israel is completely unaware of what's going on. And God is protecting them even though they have no clue there's a threat. And so we bring that up as a great reminder how God protects us even when we don't even know. What a great blessing. What a great God we serve. So, Genesis, or not Genesis, I'm going to head to Numbers, don't worry. Genesis chapter 23, let's go ahead and uh, look at this first oracle, oracle number one. Let me read the text. And Balaam said to Balak, build for me seven altars and prepare me here seven bulls and seven rams. Balak did as Balaam had said, and Balak and Balaam offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And Balaam said to Balak, stand beside your burnt offering and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. And he went to a bare height and God met Balaam and Balaam said to him, I have arranged the seven altars and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, return to Balak and thus you shall speak. And he returned to him, and behold, he and all the princes of Moab were standing beside his burnt offering. And Balaam took up this discourse and said, From Aram Balak has has brought me, the king of Moab, from the eastern mountains. Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed, and how can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? From the top of the crags I see him. From the hills I behold him. Behold a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob and number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. So this is the first oracle. Oracle number one. And one of the things we see here is that they begin with seven altars. Seven bulls and seven rams. Basically, this is a pagan ritual, and I want to bring up this slide. This is actually a Mesopotamian something we um, has been discovered from uh, uh, a tablet in Mesopotamia, and you will notice this at the dawn in the presence of Ea, Shamash, and Marduk. Those are Babylonian deities. At the dawn in the presence of Ea, Shamash, and Marduk, you must set up seven altars, place seven incense birds burners of Cyprus, and pour out the blood of seven sheep. So basically, here's what Balaam is doing. Balaam is following his basic pagan ritual of how to access the gods. And so he has he's offering bulls and, and rams because these are much more valuable than sheep. So basically, he is making certain that God will do what he... Basically, we're going to bribe God. Look how holy we are! look how uh, look how serious we are about this so he's following what he knows a pagan ritual to bring about um, this um curse upon israel, and so it is basically a pagan attempt to bribe God that's basically what what's going to happen here. Um, just a thought. how do you think that's going to go so They go up on the mountain, seven altars, um, seven sacrifices, and Balaam says, now you guys wait here. I'm going to go and hear what God has to say to me. And then I'll come back and I'll bring the oracle. Balaam's expecting a curse, that when Balaam comes back, he's going to curse Israel. And as it turns out, Balaam comes back, and he doesn't curse Israel. Rather, he blesses Israel. And in this first oracle, he describes, first of all, in verse 7, how he came uh, to the place where he is, and he basically says, I cannot thwart what God has planned. How can I curse God? How can I curse whom God has not cursed? And how can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? How can I do that? He has been hired to reverse the blessing on these people, but he encounters a God who promises to bless an, an incomparable people. And so he's like going, I came here to Curse. I can't do it. It's impossible. God has blessed them. And I can say all sorts of things, but I can't curse them. I cannot reverse. But God has already poured out upon this people. And he says, this is a people then. How can I curse whom God has not cursed and denounce whom God has not denounced? From the tops of the crags I see him. From the hills I behold him. Behold a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nation. This is a distinct people. They are dwelling alone. They are not part of any other um confederacy of nations that they are all by themselves they are distinct, they are unique they are a holy people and they serve a God who is unique distinct, he is not like Ea or Shamush or Marduk he is not like the pagan gods he is completely unique and he has a people who are completely set apart, they are a nation that has no king has no alliances, no fortified cities and yet Balaam says, who's like them? They are like the dust of Jacob. Oh, that's an important term, isn't it? Because we remember what is the promise to Abraham. The promise to Abraham when he had no children. He says, I will make you like the stars of the sky. I will make you like the dust or your offspring like the dust. As numerous as the sand in the desert. And here Balaam says, yeah, that's a God that we weren't really expecting. I can't do anything but bless them. Who is like them? In fact, I love this. At the very end, he says, in verse 10, the last part, let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. Balaam's kind of like, man, I wish I could be part of that community. I can't curse them. I'd like to join them. What we see here is God continues to bring his plans to fruition. The blessing of Abraham has been received um, by the children of Abraham and I hope that you understand that as the people of God in this new covenant, all who are of the faith of Abraham, are of the line of Abraham. That is, you are in line with the blessings of Abraham if you have the faith of Abraham. We are not children of Abraham by bloodline. We are not children of Abraham because of our heritage or our lineage. This is what Jesus told Nicodemus. You need to be born again. Your bloodline isn't going to get you anywhere. You need a new birth. And Paul brings this up in the book of Galatians. Who are the children of Abraham? The ones who have the faith of Abraham. The ones who believe and righteousness is accredited to them. We are, as a church, we have no king, no city, yet we are unlike the nations of the world. We are to be a distinct people because we have a holy God. We are the blessed people of God from every tribe and tongue and nation. I pray that people would look upon us and say, I kind of wish I was part of that group. If you're here today and you'd like to be part of the church. We'd love to talk to you afterwards, not this local church, but the church of Jesus Christ, the universal church, and you can do so by having by believing Christ and righteousness will be credited to you. We'll be happy to speak with you about that afterwards. Well, that's the first oracle, and Balak's not happy. Um, not happy at all. He's like, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and you've done nothing but bless them. And he answered and said, Must, and Balaam says, I told you, I was only going to do whatever the Lord said. Balak's response is, Well, let's try something else. Let's try this again. So, oracle number two Oracle number two is, Let's repeat the pagan ritual, but let's repeat it in a different location. Um, This is important because in pagan religions you need to remember that they understood that gods were local, gods were regional. They they didn't really have this concept, or most didn't have a concept, of a God who is God of all. But gods were local, and a great place we see this is in uh, 2 Kings. Uh, I won't turn here, but chapter uh, 1725, basically um, some people had moved in after uh, Assyria had, had conquered Israel. Some people populated um, Jerusalem and lions were attacking them and they appealed to the king saying, man, lions are attacking us. Um, we don't know the custom of the god of this land, and that's why lions are attacking. So let's bring a priest in, and he'll tell us how to function with this god. So they have this idea of regional gods. So you have a god of the river, and you have a god of the valley, and you have a god of the mountain, and you have a god of the desert, and you have a god of the Nile, and a god of the ocean. And this is why you see multiple gods, and they're regional, and they can't really cross boundaries. You have to appease once you cross the border of one god and enter into the, the territory of another, you have to learn how to, to deal with that god. And so Balak's going, well, let's go to a different place. Maybe your god isn't powerful in the place we were at. So let's go do the same thing in a different place. You see, he has a completely wrong understanding about God. If he, if he were here to say, what's the first thing that comes into mind when you think about God, he's going regional, local not almighty, not all-powerful, and it leads him to this disastrous, um, dis- these disastrous decisions. And so the first thing, and then Balaam's blessing goes like this. Rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it, or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless, He has blessed, and I can't revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord, their God, is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of the wild ox, for there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what has God wrought? Behold, a people, as a lioness, it rises up, and as a lion, it lifts itself up. It does not lie down until it has devoured its prey and drunk the blood of the slain. So this is Balaam's blessing on Israel. The first thing he says is God does not change. He is unlike the pagan deities who can be bribed and whose minds they are very capricious. They look a lot like humans. They they get jealous of one another. They uh, are limited. They... um, are capricious and uh, they change their minds. But Balaam says, who is this God? He doesn't change his mind. James tells us that in God there is no shadow of turning. He is unchangeable. Uh, Charlie's been preaching on the book of James uh, on Sunday night at at Reconcile Church, and uh, so I'd encourage you to come out there. But God does not change. Malachi brings up this really, really fascinating text about how God um, doesn't change, and, and, and I'll just—I'll I'll be brief, and you know that means nothing. But, um, <laughs> but if you read Malachi, they're, they're really, really—the people are just terrible, just horrible. Um, And, you know, they're bringing God lame sacrifices. They steal a perfect lamb from their neighbor and offer it to God. This this is where we're at. And And God says this. He says, you, Jacob, are not consumed. I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed. In other words, I have every reason to destroy you, but because of the promise that I made with Abraham, I will uphold my covenant. The only reason, the only reason that you have any hope is because I am not changing my mind. This is a powerful, powerful statement. And so God doesn't change. And then Balaam goes on. There's no enchantment or divination. In other words, Balaam was hired to convince God to change, to alter the very nature of God. But, but God cannot be bribed. He cannot be coerced or be convinced to do otherwise. And God sees no trouble for Israel. And Balaam says, God sees no trouble for Israel. I can't change that no matter how much we offer him. No matter how much we might bribe him, no matter what location we go to, we are not going to change God's mind. There is no bribe, no incantation, no philosophy that will prove his word ineffective. You cannot bribe him. Your words do not alter who God is and what God has devised. I know we have a whole theology out there called Word of Faith Theology that says that we create reality, that we manipulate God. You might as well be Balak because it is a heretical teaching. There's no place for it in the church and it's rampant in the church. And then we see how God scatters his enemies, which is interesting, because we look back at the first oracle, and it's like, they have no king. They may have no king, and yet God scatters their enemies. He is like a, he's like a wild ox in that he's just kind of going and goring Egypt, and he's like a lion and a lioness who devour, rise up and devour their prey. They have no king, and yet God is in the midst of them. What makes this nation distinct is that God is with them. God is present and fights for them without bribing, without convincing, without any of that. God is in their midst. He loves his people, even this rebellious people. What great things God has done, Balaam says. One of the things I hope we can apply from this and something that we should learn because one of the things we're trying to establish here is uh, when what is the first thing that comes into your mind when you hear about God is the most important thing about you. So we should know who God is. We have seen that God is the one who blesses his covenant people. And now one of the things we are learning is that God does not change. The fancy word for this, you want to write this down, is Immutable. God is immutable. Got that, Arvid? <laughs> Claudia, write that down for him. What this means is that God does not change in his essence. And I want you to know what a great biblical truth, a great doctrine, the doctrine of immutability is. Number one, it is a great truth because because god is immutable we have assurance by covenant we are god's people we are the people of god by covenant the covenant was cut by jesus christ in his own blood not with the blood of bulls and goats but with his own precious blood we are his covenant people because he has made a covenant himself in First Peter chapter one verses three through five, maybe some of the most profound words in all of Scripture. It begins with Blessed be God. All right, Peter's rejoicing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven by, for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation to be revealed in the last time. This is a certain covenant. It is made by God. It is secured by God. It belongs to God. And you are the recipient of that covenant. You can have great assurance. God doesn't, thought like you're going to like breathe your last breath and appear before God, and it's, ah, it changed. That whole thing that you believed, yeah, it was really good, but, you know, kind of between your last breath and now, I kind of made up some new rules, and I'm different now, it does not change. Culture changes. Our God has not changed. And as our culture is changing and saying, this is who God is, this is what God does, I think this is what... I don't think, I know God has made himself known through his word and we know exactly who he is and we we do not need to question and we can have certainty. People say, how can you be sure you're saved? Because there is a covenant that is made not with the blood of bulls and goats but with the precious blood of Christ and it is secured in heaven. We have purpose. Knowing the doctrine of immutability helps us to understand our purpose. That is, we understand that the attainment of the temporal is not a primary goal. Yes, we all work, and yes, we all have stuff, and we all, but folks, that is not our ultimate goal. If our, if we are just simply, as Carl Sagan says, cosmic dust, or as Neil what's Tyson, what's that? Famous scientist. Neil deGrasse? Anyways, Sagan said it long before him. You are nothing but cosmic dust. That's all you are, cosmic dust. You have no purpose. You are just kind of going along with whatever these electrons firing tell you to do. You are not free. You just do whatever those neurons tell you to do. And then when you die, it's all over. So hopefully you can go through life, reproduce, get, I don't know, be somewhat comfortable and then die and it's all over. You, because God is immutable, you have purpose. You have a purpose to that you will glorify and honor and bring, uh, th- that you can work and honor him in all that you say and do, that this temporal life is not all there is. We can also have steadfastness in suffering. I I don't know how to put this to you, but um, I'm going to just put it to you. I think that I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, and in 10 years, I hope one of these days you come up to me and say you're totally wrong, but I think that the the Western church is in for some really hard times. I, I think that suffering is going to be part of it. I pray that myself and the elders of this church have prepared you all to deal with that. I don't, you know, I mean, already we are outcasts. Our brothers in in Canada are literally worshiping underground this week. Literally worshiping underground. They are sending out notices covertly to their members where they are meeting so that the government cannot stop them or arrest them from gathering. That's happening right now today. I don't know that we're too far behind. But we can be steadfast because God does not change. And the God who sustained Peter and Paul and even Stephen and the great saints who have come along throughout the years, the one who sustained them will sustain us. We can trust also because God is immutable. We can trust God's word. See, God has defeated the greatest enemy Mankind's greatest enemies through the person of Jesus Christ and he has called forth a people who are the beloved of God who does not change. Not even the powers of hell can hinder what God has set forth. We can rest in that. We can stand fast in that. Oh, what great things God has done. Balak's response is, shut up. I'm telling you, that's what he says. Well, he says it a little nicer, but in in ancient times this was the the vernacular basically um he says um So anyways, <clears throat> Balaam says, be quiet. Um, don't say anything. It would be better if you did not say anything. Oh, that was Oracle 2. I thought I was ahead of that. So now we're at Oracle 3. Well, third time's a charm. Ba- Balaam sees no need for, for omens. Basically what would happen is they would set up these seven altars and then Balaam would go away and he would get an omen. Uh, they, they would re- rely on omens like the... the, 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 the um, the flight path of birds or they would read the entrails of these sacrificed animals to figure out what God is saying and so Balaam would go and and look for these omens um God didn't need omens he just spoke to Balaam and now Balaam kind of gets the hint and realizes I don't need to go anywhere just we'll set up seven more altars and God will just speak directly to me no need for omens and here's Balaam's blessing The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is open, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel! Like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters, water shall flow from his buckets, his seed shall be in many waters, his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom... Shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion, like a lioness who will rouse him up. Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. Well, here's what we see Balaam's blessing. First of all, we see the fruitfulness of God's people. We see, how lovely are your tents, O Jacob. You're like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted. And so we see that God has blessed his people with fruitfulness. But here's one of the things we learn. Remember, we're trying to discover what do we what, how, what's a right understanding of God. Here's one of the things that we should consider. In verse 4, we see this. The oracle of him who hears the words of God who sees the vision of the Almighty. That word God is the word El. It's the most basic word for God in the Bible. It is the word El, and it can be used in a lot of different ways. But then we see also in the parallel line that this is the vision of the Almighty. This is Shaddai. And from here we get this compound word El Shaddai, which means the God Almighty. Again, We should not be surprised that this comes out of the promise made to Abraham. It comes from Genesis 17.1, which is the first time we see this compound word. And where God says, I will make my covenant with you and your offspring. Remember, this is very late in Abraham's and Sarah's life. He says, I'm going to make my covenant with you and your offspring. At this time, when God says that Abraham and Sarah have zero offspring, And Abraham and Sarah laugh. But God says, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. I will bring this about. Is anything too difficult for me? This is the first time we see this word, El Shaddai. That is, that God is almighty. He is the one who nourishes and satisfies and protects and supplies his people. He is the all-sufficient sustainer. He is the one who helps. He is the one who abundantly blesses with all manner of blessings. So we see that God is the one who blesses his people. We see that God is the one who is immutable and does not change. And we see here in the third oracle that God is almighty God who abundantly does what he says he's going to do. You cannot fix or change him. Balak's response is, well, I'm not paying you now. It says, now flee to your own place. I will certainly honor you, but the Lord has held back your honor. I'm not paying you because of God. God's fault, you're not getting paid. But I'm not paying you. Because I hired you to do a job, and you're doing the opposite of the job that I hired you to do. Well, with that, Balaam again says, I told you I can only do what God tells me to do, and that's what I'm doing. And so now um, this fourth oracle is not asked for by Balak. There is no Um, sacrifice, there are no omens, Balaam just gives it to him for free, basically. Well, you've been paying me, but since you're not going to pay me, here's a freebie. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eyes is open, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall arise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Seth. I'm going to stop there. Here is Balaam's freebie prophecy. I'm telling you about something that I see, but it's not right now. In other words, what what I'm about to tell you is something that's going to happen in the future. And out of Jacob is going to come a star. And out of Jacob, a scepter will arise. From this people that you are calling me to curse, but I can't, this blessed people of almighty, immutable God, comes a person, an individual, who is going to be both a star and a scepter. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 16; Second Peter 1:9; Revelation 2:27 and 28, Jesus is called the Bright and Morning Star. This is the one whom Balaam. We now rabbis from very early on, the believers today have understood this to be messianic, pointing towards the Messiah. From this people will come one who is described as a star and a scepter. And in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus says, I am the bright and morning star. He is the one whose coming was announced by a star in Matthew chapter 2. He is, and the bright morning star is the promise of a new day. Note where this is at the very end of the book of Revelation. He is the promise of a new day. This day is growing, growing old. And we might grow weary and wonder, is any of this worth it? Is there any hope? Oh, there's a great hope because there's a new day. It is the day of the new creation and the new earth. It is the day where God consummates all of his promises to his people. And Jesus is the indication of that, the bright and morning star who is the signal that these things are true. But he is not only the bright morning star, who is the promise of a new day. But he is a king with a scepter, and he will conquer all nations. In other words, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And the prophecies go on. Basically, talks about these other these other nations. One is Amalek, who has a pride of position, a pride of place, a pride uh, the pride of priority. He is the first of nations. Um, Balaam says, and then he talks about um, um, the Kenites who have a, a privileged place or a secure location. But Balaam is saying this: the one who comes out of out of Jacob, this star, this scepter, this king, for whom every knee will bow and every tongue will po- will confess. It doesn't matter if you are Amalek or the Kenites, if you have a pride of position, that is you are the most ancient and glorious of civilizations, or you have a secure location, those things will be of no value on the terrible and glorious day of Christ's judgment. And who shall live when God does this? Who can endure the day of God's wrath? One other thing we see, in this passage of text. And it is another name for God, and we see it back in verse 16. The oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High. This is another one of those compound words, El El Yon, God Most High. And you will not be surprised where we first see this word. We first see it in reference to Abraham, where Abraham calls him, El Elyon, the Most High God. That is, he is the possessor of heaven and earth. He owns everything. He is the sovereign Lord of all. One of the best places we see a description of this is in the book of Daniel, where Nebuchadnezzar has just come through his seven years of insanity. And he's come to his senses. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar says. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, Lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever and ever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? El Elyon, the Most High God, is the sovereign over all and none can stay his hand. So, we have seen a number of different things. We have seen that God is the God who blesses his covenant people and he dwells in their midst. We see that he does not change and he cannot be swayed or persuaded otherwise. We see that he is the Almighty God uh, who has power and sufficiency to do all that he has promised. And he is the most high God who rules sovereignly. And there is no other authority or power in heaven or on earth. So I'll conclude with this. My conclusion is this. What comes to mind when we think about God? If what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, and after this message, I'm going to ask what comes to your mind when you think about God. I would hope that this week, as you think about the things of God, you will think that he is the one who blessed his covenant people. You will ask yourself, am I a member of his covenant people? Am I part of the church? If you have repented of your sins and called upon the name of Jesus Christ and trusted in his grace alone, you're part of his covenant people. If you're not, we'd love to talk to you a little bit about that. We've learned also that he dwells in the midst of his people. And for us, he dwells by means of his Holy Spirit whom he has put in our lives and put in our, in our, in our hearts. But God dwells with his people that he, and he does not change. We learn that he is almighty God No one can stay his hand. No one can thwart his purposes. And he is the one who possesses heaven and earth. He owns everything. It all belongs to him. So God's covenant with us makes us the blessed of God. You are beloved in him. This does not change because God does not change. We cannot bribe him or thwart his purposes. God is almighty and his plans will succeed and God is sovereign over all. Father, we come before you this day. I pray that we have an understanding of who you are and that we are encouraged, that we become steadfast, that we love you more, that we will love our neighbor even more, that we will see the urgency of what it is to be the people of God. Oh, Father, help us to be steadfast. Let us not falter. And when we do, let us fall upon you So grant us grace and mercy this day. Let your name be honored. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.